I'm not giving up on you. Those are words that I have spoken. Those are words that have been spoken over me. Those are the words that Jesus speaks to us this morning. I'm not giving up on you. In the deepest, darkest pit of my life, in a place I'd never been in before, Debbie said to me, or I'm just not giving up on you. When Debbie, my wife, was hobbled by a torn tendon behind her ankle, those were words I spoke over her. I'm not giving up on you either. I'm looking for someone who can help us. When my oldest son, Chris, came back from college, sort of sophomoric, (laughs) feeling sort of like independent, I said to him, you know, son, I want to be your father. I'm not giving up on you. You are my son. When my son Jimmy, who now is a first lieutenant infantry officer, he had a tough stretch when he was about 13 years old. I said to him, son, we'll get through this together because I'm never going to give up on you. These are words of hope and hope, words of resolution. I don't know how we're going to make it through this, but somehow by God's grace we'll get through this because I'm not ever going to give up on you. Stories told about two soldiers in the Vietnam War. They promised to be battle buddies to one another, and the fight was intense. One of the soldiers was wounded, and his platoon pulled back, and the soldier who had promised to him realized his friend was wounded in battle, so he went back, and many warned him not to, but he found his friend had actually was dying and then died. And many said to him, it just wasn't worth it. He said, no, no, it was worth it because I heard my friends say, I knew you'd come back for me. There's power in saying, I'm not giving up on you. So we're in this series entitled, Not Giving Up On You. It's about how we as disciples live out our faith in our families. Are you willing to fight for the people you love? Think about that for a little while. Are you willing to fight for the people you love? I get concerned when I see a man who's unwilling to fight for his marriage, unwilling to fight for his family. I can get concerned when I see a wife who's withdrawn and no longer in the fight. For your marriage to make it, you have to fight for it. There are times when the sky is blue and the sea is calm and the wind is behind your back. And there's other times when the sky is black and the sea is turbulent and the wind is in your face. And that's when you need to fight for your marriage, saying, I'm not ever going to give up on you. But before you ever get into a fight, you have to ask yourself a couple of questions. Is this the battle I'm supposed to fight? I learned that from David in the Psalms when he said, Lord, is this the battle you want me to fight? There was a time when uh, his whole family was taken captive, and he had to ask the Lord, Lord, is this a battle you want me to fight? And secondly, is this worth it? Your marriage is definitely worth fighting for. Your kids are definitely worth fighting for. And we certainly respect those who don't give up. We respect the student who perseveres through the classes unto graduation. We respect the teams that fight back to get back into the fight in the game. We respect the soldiers who experience the hardships and fight on in the midst of the battle. So this whole sermon is about not giving up. If you like structure, we're going to talk about what, so what, and now what. Okay, so let's go to the what. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, it says, though we live in this world, 
We do not wage war as the world wages war. The, wor the world wages war by sarcasm, by ridicule, by power, by intimidation, by conquering. You see, we do not wage war like the world wages war. The world is out to crush, and we're out to restore. The, wor the world is out to take no prisoners, and we're out, in Jesus' name, to set the prisoners free. But the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world, you see. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. So you say, Pastor R., what are some of the weapons that we fight with? Well, we fight with the grace and mercy of God. We fight with the power of prayer. We fight with forgiveness. You know, you ask, you know, how will I ever deal with all that anger that's in my soul? It says, get rid of the anger and the wrath and the malice. Well, the answer is we get rid of it by forgiveness in Jesus' name, that as he has forgiven us, so we forgive. We battle with a spirit of humility, a spirit of humility, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. And these strongholds become dismantled as we fight with his divine power. You see, the enemy has taken camp. He has made a stronghold. We've entered into agreement with him, and we have to break that agreement and believe the truth, and step forth into freedom. Now, Nehemiah, the book we're going to consider this morning, has some background, but I want to say that Nehemiah was a very humble man. You say, Pastor R., how do you know that Nehemiah was humble? When he heard the condition of his city, the condition of his nation, we find in chapter 1, that he prayed, and he fasted, and he confessed his sins unto God. Prayer, confession, fasting will always be about humbling ourselves before God. Many have called Maryland one of the most liberal states in the nation. And our legislature has just passed a law and has been signed by our governor that if a person believes that their birth gender is female, whether they are male or female, they can walk into and use a woman's bathroom. You have to wonder where has, where, how, fall, how far have we fallen as a nation? How far, how far have we fallen as a state that a man dressed as a woman can now walk into a woman's bathroom? Now, the law hasn't gone into effect. There could well be a referendum, and it needs 50,000 signatures. It may be that God will raise up some people here to fight on behalf of our women, that they can go in peace. But it seems to me that the, resp that the, response, the response of us to our state is to humble ourselves and to pray and to confess our sins and to fast and to see how God wants us to battle on, right? Where is the fight? Where do you want us to fight? How do you want us to fight? You see, Nehemiah heard some news about Jerusalem. It wasn't good news. The walls around the city were torn down. They were broken down. And the gates of the city were burned with fire. So what did he do? He prayed, and he fasted, and he confessed. 
See, brothers and sisters, either we will humble ourselves before God or we will be humbled as a nation. Either we will repent of our sins and God will relent of his judgment or our nation will be judged for her sin. In his humble prayer, Nehemiah confessed the sins of his people. You see, we just didn't get here. It was a gradual slope. We tumbled down, including the sins of his father's house, saying we have acted wrongfully. We have not obeyed. The word he uses there is iniquity, the sins that have been passed down from generation to generation. In my uh, last year of brokenness, God was revealing to me several of the sins of my heart, the sin of pride, sin of independence, the sin of self-will, the sin of trying to be in control, and God was dismantling those sins in my life. You know where they came from? They were passed down to me from generation to generation. I am the last domino in a long series of dominoes. You see, Nehemiah was a humble man, and he came before God in his humility. And he came then before the king, and he was praying for favor in the eyes of the king. And the king said to him in chapter 2, what is it, Nehemiah, that you want? And before Nehemiah even answered the question, he looked to the God of heaven, prayed, and he answered the king. He said, I want to leave here. I want to go back to Judah. And I want to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And here's what the king did. The king granted him permission. He gave him a liberal leave policy to go back to the land. And then he gave him an easy pass to pass through some territory unfettered. And then he gave him his credit card to go to Lowe's to buy buy, uh, timber. And then he sent some state troopers along to guard him on his journey. Updating the story a little bit. See, Nehemiah was a humble man. And when he came to the city, he doesn't start bossing people around. He doesn't start waving his credentials. He doesn't start just kind of like flashing his papers. Rather, he assesses the situation. He went out into the city, and he saw the condition of the walls and the condition of the gates. You see, he relied on God to show him what his next move was. Nehemiah was a humble man. He would only go where God showed him to go. He would only move where God showed him to move because he wanted to follow God's direction for healing that city. I don't want to do anything, Lord, apart from what you want me to do. God, I'd only want to move where you are moving. As you drive around your city, as you listen to people talk, What are they talking about? What is the condition of your city? At work, what are they talking about? What do you see? You see, Nehemiah was a humble man. And after three days of survey, he said, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and then we will no longer be in disgrace. You see, Nehemiah sees a vision for his city. He sees the walls are broken down, and the city is vulnerable. The gates have been burned with fire, and just about anything can come into the city. Do you realize that you are the gatekeepers of your house?
You permit whatever comes into your house to come into the house. You permit whatever you allow to see on television. You permit whatever video games are played inside your house. You permit whatever is seen on the internet. You see, we all are the gatekeepers of our own homes. And we pastors are the gatekeepers of our city. Nehemiah was a humble man. He was a cupbearer, not a builder. As far as I know, he had never built something before. But the people were going to have to buy into the vision, and he called them to action. He said, our God is for us. Our God is with us. He has shown us his favor. So let us rebuild the city. And so the people began to build. In the chapter 4 of Nehemiah, which I'm opening now my Bible, which is page number 755. You have a blue Bible, but just back of Job and Esther, just past 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah chapter 4, we find that Nehemiah comes under attack. Notice in chapter 4, verse 1, Sanballat, the enemy, heard about the rebuilding of the wall. The vision was very clear. We're going to rebuild the wall. But they began to question the character of the people. He ridiculed the Jews and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? He questioned their intention. Will they restore the wall? He questioned their um, integrity. Will they offer sacrifices? He questioned their ability. Will they finish in a day? Can they bring these stones back to life? He questioned their materials. One of the tactics of the enemy is to bring scorn, ridicule, and sarcasm against God and his people. Whenever you try to build something for God, you can expect to find opposition. So Nehemiah now, to God's glory, was trying to rebuild the wall, but now he's facing major opposition. They even said if, they, if a fox jumps onto the wall, he'll tear it down. Now you find in verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah uttered a very angry prayer to God. And in verse 6, it says, So we re rebuilt the wall till it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. You see, the people had a mindset to work. Their heart was in the project. They saw the vision, and they were willing to work night and day to see this come to pass. So look now at verse 13. Therefore, in light of the threat, I stationed some people behind the lowest part, points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, officials, and rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. The first thing that Nehemiah said was, the Lord our God is bigger than our enemies. The Lord our God is in the heavens. The Lord our God has never lost a battle. The Lord our God has delivered people before. Do you remember down in Egypt when our people were slaves and God was setting them free? You see, Egypt stands for bondage. They were slaves to the Egyptians. And the Egyptian army was chasing after Israel. And God said through Moses, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of Pharaoh. Do not be afraid of the Egyptians. Do not be afraid of the chariots. Do not be afraid. Do not live your lives in fear. God has not given to us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and love and of a sound mind. He says, do not be afraid. And God carried them through that Red Sea. They walked on dry land, and God took care of them there in the desert. God became their provision and their deliverer. He gave them water to drink and food to eat and protected them from their enemies. And then he brought them into the promised land. And so, through Nehemiah, he said, do not be afraid of them. And then he said, and remember the Lord who is great and awesome. You see, in order to move forward with what God wants us to do, sometimes we need to look backward at what, who God is and what God has done. You see, it was easy for them to recall that they were far away and God had brought them back. That now God had given them favor and they were building on this wall in the midst of the project. But the people were becoming discouraged. So this is what he says at the bottom of verse 14 we're going to camp for the rest of our time. He said, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, fight for your wives, fight for your sons and your daughters, and fight for your homes. We need to be willing to fight. Imagine your brother has been taken captive. He's behind enemy lines, and the enemy has taken him into captivity. He has fallen prey to temptation. The enemy has stalked him and has turned him to do his will. Your brother is kicking himself. Sin was pleasurable for a season, but now there is shame, regret, and guilt. He has been taken out. He has been sidelined. I want to say this is not the condition of one. This is the condition of many in America. They have been taken out by the enemy. The enemy has taken them out from the battle. They've been put on the sidelines. And he's your brother. So you decide you're going to fight. You know, if one man fights alone, he'll most likely lose the battle. But if two fight together, there can be victory. That's why the scripture says that two are better than one. For if one man falls down, he has his brother to help him out. But pity the poor man who falls with no one to help him out. If two lie down together, they can keep themselves warm at night. I like that part. Now, what's, what's the imagery he's talking about? He's talking about two battle buddies lying back to back in the cold battlefield where there's no warmth other than the warmth of their bodies lying back to back. Two, if they fight together, they can prevail against the enemy. It says, if you are spiritual and your brother's been caught in a sin, you're to restore him gently. Spiritual means walking in the Spirit, asking, God, what is my assignment? God, my brother has been trapped. I know you want him to be set free. So, Father, show me the path toward my brother's freedom. I want to help him walk in freedom. I don't want him to be a slave anymore. It says, first of all, fight for your brothers. Secondly, fight for your sons. Imagine your son. That's who you're fighting for. So often I'll say to people in recovery, you know, you're not only fighting for yourself, but you're also fighting for your son. Because the degree to which you go into freedom, so you will pass that freedom on to your son. 
If you live your life in slavery, you'll pass that also on to your son. Your son is going to be a lot like you. He is a mirror reflection of you. So we pass on to our sons ourselves. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Most men I know in the American culture are passing several things on to their sons. Three things I think of start with a P. The first is power. We long to be powerful, strong. We long to be in control. Possessions. Life to some is all about possessions. You know, having a cool car to drive with, having a cool phone to text with, having a cool boat to fish with. And life is all about pleasures. Life is all about getting as much pleasure as possible. So most men pass on three things to their sons. The desire for power to be in control, the desire for possessions to have much, and the desire for pleasure usually expressed through women and alcohol. But what if we were to pass on to our sons something very different than power, possession, and pleasure? What if we were to pass on to our sons freedom? What if we were to pass on to our sons contentment? What if we were to pass on to our sons peace? You see, in order to know peace, we have to know Jesus. We have to be his disciple, and his peace floods into our life. And that peace can flow from us to our sons. We can raise our sons to be followers of Jesus Christ and to know his peace, to know his contentment, to know his power, to know his pleasure, to live our lives to the pleasure of God. Well, how is a man to fight for his sons? This generation is not looking for perfect. God already has a perfect son. He doesn't need another perfect son. Your son is looking for a dad who will listen to his story, who will show his son how to do stuff, whose son will want to be like him, a father who will coach him through the various parts of life, a father who will give to his son his faith. No son becomes a, becomes a man on his own. Manhood is bequeathed onto our sons from their fathers. I was just talking to a man. He's a welder. And his grandson said to him, who's also learning to weld, he said, Dad, do you think, or Granddad, do you think I'd be able someday to come into your shop? I'd be able to weld? You see, what the young man was looking for was the vote of affirmation from his grandfather that he could do what he did his entire life. You see, we have to fight for our sons. We have to engage in the battle. We have to involve ourselves in what matters to them. He says, and to fight for your daughters. Your daughter is a delicate flower. Someday she will be a strong oak tree. But right now, while she's a delicate little flower, you have to put a fence around her lest she become crushed. Teach her she is worth fighting for. Teach her she is worth protecting. She will learn that she has value. She will learn she is beautiful. She will learn how to navigate through this world. So every father I know thinks of his daughter as a Stradivarius and the young men in her life as young beasts. I remember my daughter Betsy saying to me stuff like, Dad, could you tell those guys down there to go home? Now, I'd say to them, okay, guys, it's time to go home. And they said, Pastor, we like being at your house. 
But I said, we like it when you go home. <laughs> you have to fight for your daughter. Call her beautiful because she is. Fight for her because she is worth it. You see, every daughter wants to come under the loving protection of her dad. She finds security and strength in her dad. Don't be afraid to show her affection. Don't be afraid to give her protection because she's your daughter and she needs that. Fight for your daughters. And it says, fight for your wives. A man is made to fight. A woman needs a man who's willing to fight for her. If he doesn't fight for her, she wonders, am I worth fighting for? Is there anything of value in me, in us, worth fighting for? Our marriages, you understand, are part of a larger story. The, the Bible begins with a marriage of a man and woman, and it ends also with a marriage celebration. But in between, what happens is a battle. There's a huge battle going on for our marriages. You see, the home is meant to be a refuge, a place apart from the battlefield. But our homes have turned into the battlefield where we're fighting with each other versus fighting for each other. You see, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is all about love. We're commanded to love. We're exhorted to love. But the kingdom of darkness is all about destruction. And you have an enemy who lurks who wants to destroy your marriage. That's why you need to fight for your wives. So let's talk about wives for a moment. Let's make this a moment of equipping. Wives, wives want their husbands to fight for them. They, they want to know their husbands are for them. They want to, their husbands to do what they have promised. They want their husbands to listen to what they're saying. So what if a wife says to her husband, have you fill in the blank? Now I'm sure this happens to you. Your wife says to you, have you, right? Have you taken out the trash? Have you called the bank? Have you dealt with the insurance? Now, you could be on it, right? Or you could have forgotten it, or you could be avoiding it. So your wife says to you, have you. Now, what's a good response to the question, have you? Here is a great response. Thanks for reminding me. I'm really working on that, and this is where I am. Or, you know what? That's completely off my radar. I'm sorry, I've forgotten. But on the other hand, she says, have you, fill in the blank, question mark. And she doesn't get an answer. Or you say something like, why don't you leave me alone? Or, don't you know I'm busy? Or, don't you know I'm an anointed man of God? Really, really bad answers. <clears throat> so let's work on <laughs> have you blank. What does the Bible call the husband to do? It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. You see, it's all about humbling yourself and being a servant leader. God is opposed to the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble husband. Your marriage is going to take some work, and God is going to work upon us, the men. And the devil hates your marriage. You see, the picture of God's love, Jesus' love for the church, is the picture of the marriage, the man and the woman. And there's beauty and life in a marriage. But it really does imply the man humbles himself and becomes a servant to his wife. Let's talk about fighting for our homes. The home is holy, sacred place. The home is where we retreat from the battle to get some rest, to get some peace. But a man has to fight for his home by setting the atmosphere. We were singing early, let your kingdom come, change the atmosphere. That's a beautiful prayer to pray, Lord, change the atmosphere of my home. When I walk into the home, I bring my peace into the home. You see, the husband, the father, is a sanctifying influence. He does not, under any conditions, allow his children to disrespect their mother. My daughter, Betsy, when she would get sassy, we had hot sauce. And she'd take, she would take a teaspoon of hot sauce. We would go through much hot sauce in a year, <laughs> especially the years of 11 and 12, disrespecting her mom. But if a man is passive, if he sits idly by, if he pretends there really isn't a battle, what happens is the home becomes a battlefield, and God wants it to be a place of peace. So let's move from the what to the so what. What was Nehemiah's battle plan according to Nehemiah chapter 4? We find in Nehemiah 4, the first part of the battle plan is to pray. We need to pray over our houses. When I pull up in the evening coming home, I will pray over my house. In the mornings very early, I will pray for Debbie. I will pray for my children. I will pray for my children's spouses. I'll pray for my little grandson, Judah. I'll pray for other people that God puts upon my heart. You see, the battle is really first fought on our knees. Prayer is where God releases his power. So Nehemiah, first of all, prayed to the God of heaven. And then what happened is he united the people into a common vision. The people were becoming preoccupied with the rubble of the city, the dirt and the mortar and the stones. They had become focused on the negative. They had become focused on the enemy. Nehemiah was calling them to focus on rebuilding the wall. You see, God had given him a very clear vision. The vision was, we're going to be, rebuild the walls around our city. We're going to restore the gates to our city. But it's so easy to get off the vision. So here, our vision is we exist to be disciples, who make disciples, who live in love like Jesus. So let's say a young mom, she's dealing with some of the rubble in her life. Let's say, for instance, she has a newborn, and you ask her how it's going, and she tells you that today I've changed eight diapers, and I've changed five different outfits. What's happened is that she's become focused on the day-to-day, -day, right? But she may not have the focus on the long-term that I'm raising up a disciple. You see, I am being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, 
in order that I can raise this little one to also be a disciple. You see, I am a disciple making a disciple. That is to say, my eyes are fixed on the vision. And then he did not focus upon the negative. There was plenty of negativity in his city. Do you have any friends who just kind of live in the negative? They're just full of negativity. They just kind of like want to talk about something negative. And when you're with them, they just kind of drain the energy out of your tank. You'll find that Nehemiah did not spend his time exclusively with the negative ones. He got away and he listened to God, what God was saying for him to do. And he did not focus on the enemy's plot to bring discouragement to the people. He called the people to remember the Lord, who is great and who is awesome. And he called the people to be ready to fight. Now surely, what happens in Nehemiah is that they had to prepare to fight the battle, but they also had to keep building their city. As you are in marriage, the enemy will come against you, and you need to be prepared to fight. But at the same time, you need to continue to build your marriage, you know, stone upon stone, making it stronger, making it a marriage that will endure. So we're going to spend a little time now in some focused prayer. And what I want you to do now, just kind of just quiet yourself and um, get still. And we're going to spend some time in the presence of God just preparing ourselves. Just close your eyes and pray with me. Father, here we are in your presence on a memorial day. We've talked about how soldiers have fought for their lands, for their country, for their homes, for their wives, for their daughters. But now, Father, we want to spend some time praising you because you are the God of heaven and you're the God of angel armies and you rule over all the kingdoms and all the nations. You are sovereign in control. Power and might are in your hand and no one can ever withstand you. We pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We praise you, God, that you are our refuge and our strength. You are our rock and fortress and our deliverer. No one who has ever put their faith in you has ever been disappointed. We call out to you, Lord, for you are worthy of our praise. But we come not only praising this morning, we come confessing. Father, we confess that at times that we have run from the battle. We confess at times we have pretended there is no battle. We confess that at times we have tried to battle in our own strength and have failed. Father, we confess that there is a battle raging for our families. There's a battle raging in our children's lives. There's a battle raging in our nation. There's a battle raging in our state. So God, we're going to walk into your presence now in this prayer time and say, God, reveal to us where is the battle. God, we ask you to reveal to us where is the battle. Where is my brother under attack? Where is my sister under attack? Where is my son or daughter under attack? How, Lord, 
Do you want me to fight on their behalf? Is this a battle in prayer? Do you want me to become their prayer warrior? God, do you want me to become their encourager, walking beside them, lifting them up, breathing courage into their soul? Is there a battle in their personal life? Is there a battle in their married life? Is there a battle in their financial life? Is there a battle with their health? We know, God, that they're in a fight. God, show me how to come alongside. And God, as you delivered so many times before, you delivered your children out of bondage. You stretched forth your hand. You delivered Nehemiah and his people under threat. So you have the power to deliver. So come, Lord, and deliver your people. Come, Lord, and stretch out your hand. Come, Lord, and empower your people to fight. Come, Lord, and help us to engage in the battle. Come, Lord, and help us to involve ourselves in people's lives and not see them be taken down, taken out by the enemy. God, we plead to you on behalf of our neighborhoods, on our city, onto our state, onto our nation, that we might fight in the name of Jesus Christ and fight the good battle and not be quitters and not ever stop. God, use us. Use us, Lord, to be your warriors. Raise up warriors, Lord, from this group. Raise up warriors who will fight the good fight in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God has called you to fight. Fight on, soldiers, and happy Memorial Day.
Yeah.
We are so glad you are here. My name is Cassie, and these are some things you need to know to be in the loop. If you are a first-time guest, a special welcome to you. We are so glad you are here. God has a purpose for you here today. We invite you to fill out a guest connection card found in the bulletin. It lets us know you are here and allows us to connect with you. Our second annual Dad Fest is just around the corner, June 15th at 10 a.m. at the Middletown Park. We are having one service together as a church. If you liked Mama Mania, you will love Dad Fest with games and competitions made just for dads. Eric Haynes is our reigning champion and will be there to pass the coveted Dad Fest trophy on to the next winner. Our guest speaker will be Stephen Joyce, a church planter and senior pastor of a church called About My Father's Business from Northeast D.C. He is a powerful and dynamic speaker that you will not want to miss. After Dad Fest, we'll be having an all-church picnic right there at the park. We are getting food for everyone, but we need to know you are coming. Please sign up for food at the back of the worship center and indicate a side dish you can bring. We will also have a sign-up on our website, www.gracetoday.org. Mark your calendars for June 15th. Invite your friends and family for this wonderful outreach event and plan to join us at DadFest 2014. Our Haiti team is getting ready to head out in a couple of weeks. There is one more fundraiser, Sunday, June 1st, at the Chipotle off Route 26 near Wegmans. 50% of the proceeds go to support the team, and we would love to see you there. Thanks for joining us today. If you're just walking in and have missed these announcements, we post this video on our Facebook page or check out our church website at www.gracetoday.org for more information about upcoming events and details concerning ministry. We are delighted you are here with us and believe that God has a plan for you. These are some things that you needed to know to stay in the loop. Hey church, let's stand together. Every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mountain fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin when your love came and 
and set me free. Now my heart can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me, and I'll never Precious Prince of Peace, hear your cry to you we sing. Come, thou fount of our blessing. Come, thou fount, come, thou King. Come, thou precious Prince of Peace, hear your cry to you we sing. Thou fount of our blessing. O oh, to grace our greater debtor, Daily I'm constrained to thee. Let thy goodness, like a feather, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts Prince of Peace, hear your bride to you we sing, come thou fount of our blessing, come thou fount, come thou King, come thou precious Prince of Peace, hear your bride to you we sing, come thou of our blessing. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me and I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free 
Now my soul can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me, and I'll never be alone. my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, in all here in the love of Christ I'll stand in Christ alone in Christ alone who took on flesh fullness of God in helpless pain this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save till on that cross as jesus died the wrath of god was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of christ i live body lay light of the world by darkness lay then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curse has lost his grip on me I am here precious blood of Christ Lift it up church, no guilt in life No guilt in life No fear in death the power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, 
What an anthem. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And if you've been following Jesus any amount of time, you know that Satan loves to throw his darts and his accusations. God's word tells us that Satan stands before the throne room of God accusing the saints. But we get to stand on Romans 8.1 where it says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. What a great reminder, church. What a great reminder. Last week, we learned a song called The Lord Our God. It's written from the perspective of the Israelites when they were in their time of wandering in the desert, when they relied on God himself for their daily food, their daily bread. Not only did they rely on him for that, but they relied on him because he was their, their guide as they went through the desert. So we're going to sing this song again, and won't you join with us? Hopefully we're more familiar with it this time around. Won't you join with us? This verse, just thinking about it for a moment, in the silence, in the waiting still, God, I know you are good. In those times of waiting upon the Lord may be a time when you're waiting on him for a job, for a house, waiting on him for a pregnancy. It says, still, God, we know that you are good. That those times of waiting can trigger in us to doubt the goodness of God. But just like the Israelites, God, we know you are good in every trial and every circumstance and every situation. You don't leave us stranded, but you are near and dear to us. So let's sing it together, God, in the silence and the waiting. We know you are good. In the silence, in the waiting, still we can know you are good. Your plans are for your glory. Yes, we can know you are good. Yes, we can know. Yes, we can know you are good. Lord, our God. 
God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages from this darkness. You will lead us, and forever we will say, You're the Lord our God. We trust in you, God. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. You're the light of all and all that we need. Sing that again. We won't. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. You're the light of all and all that we need. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. You're the light of all and all that we need. We won't move without you. We won't move without you. You're the light of all and all that we need. The Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. From this darkness, you will lead us, and forever we will say, You're the Lord our God, and forever we will say, You're the we will say you're the Lord our God join me in a word of prayer God we thank you so much that you love us so much you love us so much that you have created us God to be in a relationship with you You sent your son to take our place, to set us free from our captivity to sin, to shame. God, you gave us victory. You gave us new life. And Lord, that's the hope that we cling to this morning. In those times of darkness, the times where you're leading us, Lord, where we need to see the light at the end of the tunnel, God, you are our hope. You've given us victory. And Lord, would we put our trust and our hope and our faith in you? Because you've already won that battle. You've set us free from sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, we proclaim that today. We we declare that our victory. We own that, Lord. For those of us maybe who are still stuck, Lord, would you walk with us? Would you make your presence known and felt through your Holy Spirit's power? Would you convict us maybe of, of sin in our life, that we could see it, that we could be set free, that we could truly follow you? We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We are so glad that you are here this morning and 
And we honestly believe that God has something amazing that he wants to say to each and every one of us. And uh, so we're delighted that you're here in the presence of the Lord to just hear from, from God. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Miller, and I am the youth pastor here. And this is Scott Avey, our worship pastor. If you are here for the first time, special welcome to you. Please fill out the information card found in your worship program and set it in the plate as it passes by. Let's us know you're here, and we love to just say hello because we care about you. Yeah, sure. We want to dismiss our children at this time. Uh, our grades K through five can head off to their classes, and uh, some of them are off to the races. So, kids, you can be dismissed to your your programming. <laughs> Well, Eric, we've got these huge signs up behind us. Every single week we talk about them because we want it to be just a bedrock about what we do here. Ever before us is the fact that we believe God's called us in the path of making disciples and being disciples. And so on my left to your right is our vision statement. Uh, If you've been here for any amount of time, hopefully you have it memorized. If not, it's okay. That's there for a reason so you can cheat and look at that. Why don't you say it with me? We exist to be disciples who make disciples who live and love like Jesus. You know, it kind of asks the question then, well, what does it mean to live and love like Jesus? And the answer to that is not found in a church manual or some bestseller list at the Christian bookstore. The answer to that is found in the Gospels. uh, It shows up in the story of Jesus and how he lived and and how he loved on people. And I tell you what, it challenges me so much because there's so many um, situations where I stepped into that, where I I read it and I say, wow, he did he did what? Like, wow, he spent time with, with, with those people? Yeah. Wow, man, that really challenges me. And in John chapter 15, Jesus says, if we're going to produce any kind of fruit, we've got to abide in him. And we spent some time a couple months ago talking about what it means to abide in the vine. And there's a, there's a verse. Eric, why don't you take us through this verse here in John chapter 15? So basically, yeah, in in verses 12 and 13, Jesus says that his command is this, that we would love each other as as he, as as I have loved you. And he says, greater love uh, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that has a special meaning both for our vision statement, but also for this morning, for this weekend, uh, as we celebrate Memorial Day. So uh, what, what does that mean for us this morning? Absolutely. Well, there's this beautiful picture because Jesus was really in John 15. 15, foreshadowing the fact that he was going to give his life up on the cross. And he's saying, look, this is the love that I'm going to show you. And so I can't think this weekend about those people who've given their life without recognizing that they're really representing the kind of sacrifice that Jesus gave for his friends. And so this weekend we celebrate people who have given their lives uh, in defense of the country and their service to the country. And uh, what a beautiful little spark that you see in John chapter 15 as we celebrate, as we celebrate those things. We do. So Eric, would you mind praying for our, uh, our giving time here? We'll call the ushers forward at this time and continue to worship. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you've given us your word. And as we just saw in this verse that you've uh, given your son, Lord, that uh, he would be that example for us that, uh, Lord, we can love each other as you have loved us, that we can uh, love our, our neighbors, Lord, and even for those uh, who have given their lives in, in service to this country, God, the, those who have uh, dedicated themselves and, and those who have uh, even given their lives, Lord, we want to remember them and honor them this morning. We are so grateful, uh, Lord, for what you have done in and through those people to give us that protection and the freedom that we have uh, for those of us who are living in here 
in, in America. And God, we uh, rejoice in the fact that uh, you call each of us to be your ambassadors, that we too can uh, take up, uh, Lord, arms as we're going to hear even this morning, how we can be a part of the battle that you have called us to, to fight for that freedom. And so God, uh, I just pray that each and every one of us, Lord, would look for ways that you're calling us to fight, Lord, not to give up, and that we would be uh, a part of your kingdom's work. Lord, use these tithes and offerings even now as we give back out of the abundance that you have given to us. Lord, use these things to further and advance your kingdom's work in our community, in our state, and to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Understand. 
was showing his love and that's how he hurt his hands it was what they could understand he was showing his love beautiful picture of love. If you have a um, Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 4 and the 14th verse. We are uh, <clears throat> talking about not giving up on you, and those words have been spoken over me. And I have spoken those words to others. In the deepest, darkest place that I've ever been before, my wife Debbie said to me, R, I'm not giving up on you. And when Debbie was hobbled by a uh, a major car wreck and a torn tendon behind her ankle, I remember saying, I'm not giving up. There's somebody who can help us. And my oldest son, Chris, came back from college feeling all sophomoric. I, <laughs> I remember saying to him something like, son, I want to be your father. Uh, I'm not giving up on you. You are my son. And my son, Jimmy, had a tough stretch. He was about 13 years old. I remember saying to him, you know, I don't know how we'll get through this, but with God's help, we will. These are words of hope and resolution. I'm not giving up on you. Stories told about two soldiers in the Vietnam War. They promised to be battle buddies, and one was, well, they were in conflict, and a major firefight happened, and one was wounded. The platoon pulled back, and the one soldier said, I must go back and, you know, to my friend. And people said, no, it's too late. You know, it's not worth it. And he went back, and the soldier was dying and eventually died. And they said, was it worth it? And he said, yes, because I heard him say, I knew you'd come back for me. See, God calls us to not ever give up on one another. We're in this series called What? I'm Not Giving Up On You because it's about living out our lives as disciples in our families. So let me ask you a pretty deep question. I want you to ponder for just a little while. Are you willing to fight for the people you love? Are you willing to go to battle for them? I can get concerned about a father who begins to withdraw and not engage and not be involved in his kids' lives, his marriage. About a woman who sort of like withdraws from the battle. For your marriage to make it, you're going to have to fight for it. There are times when the sky is blue and the sea is calm and the wind is behind you. There's other times when the sky is black and the sea is turbulent and the wind is gusted in your face. It's in those very moments that you need to say, I'm just not giving up on you. But before you ever get into a fight, 
you have to ask yourself some questions. Is this a battle I'm supposed to fight? You know, David was a warrior, and many times he went before the Lord inquiring, is this a battle you want me to fight? Because not every battle is a battle God calls to fight. And secondly, you have to ask the question, is it worth it, right? You have to count the cost before you go to battle. Your marriage is definitely worth fighting for, and your kids are definitely worth fighting for. And we respect people that never give up, teams that get back into the game even though it's difficult to get back in the game. They're, they're losing. And students have kind of fought to the finish, you know, overcome obstacles, fought their way to graduation, or soldiers who faced hardships and fought their way to, through the battle. So this sermon is taken from Nehemiah. Before we get there, I want to share a verse with you. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. It says, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war like the world wages war. Let me try to explain. When the world wages war, it wages war with intimidation, sarcasm, mockery. Wages war with, uh, I'm going to take you out, threats. So we, we, though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world wages war. The world is out to crush. God is out to restore. The world is out to take no prisoners, but we're out to set the prisoners free. You see, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Our weapons are things like the grace and mercy of God. Our weapons are things like prayer we fight with. Our weapons are things like forgiveness. You say, Pastor R, how will I deal with all that anger that's raging in my soul? The Bible says get rid of the anger and the rage and the malice. And it says to forgive one another. You see, forgiveness is a beautiful weapon to set a soul free. And finally, there is humility. Humility has been called the key virtue because it's the virtue out of which all the other uh, virtues flow. You see, there's various strongholds. We have power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds are enemy encampments. We've made agreement with the enemy. We begin to break that agreement, stepping in the truth, and we find freedom. So God wants to set his children free. Now, Nehemiah was a very humble man. You say, Pastor, how do you know that he was humble? Well, he, when he heard about the condition of his nation, the condition of his city he, he lived in once, he prayed and he fasted and he confessed his sins to God. Many have called Maryland one of the most liberal states in the nation. We now have passed a law through our legislature and the governor has signed it that if a person believes that in their gender they are female, whether they are female or male, they can walk into and use a woman's bathroom. What do you think? You've got to ask the question, you know, like, how do we get here? Like, is anybody going to fight this? Now, not all the legislators voted on behalf of this. Some voted against this. But don't you think the women want us to fight for them, that they can go in peace? Yes. yes. <laughs> you see, <laughs> a godly person 
prays, confesses, humbles themselves before God and says, God, how do you want me to respond to this? There's going to be a referendum, perhaps. It needs 50,000 signatures. Would you be willing to sign that? Would you be willing to vote against that? I just don't think it's a real good idea to kind of clog up the women's bathroom with guys. Nehemiah had heard some news about his city. He had heard some news about his nation. The walls of the city were broken down. The gates were burned with fire. You see, here's what's going to happen. Either we as a nation are going to humble ourselves and pray, confess our sins, and God is going to bring revival to our land, or else we're going to be judged for our sins. When we humble ourselves, we humble ourselves like Nehemiah humbled himself. He began not only confessing his own sins, but the sins of his people, the sins of his father's house. He said, we have acted very wickedly. The word there is iniquity. It refers to the sin that is passed on from generation to generation to generation. You see, when I was going through this last year, God was revealing to me certain sins in my life, like pride and independence and self-will and trying to be in control. You see, where do these come from, Pastor? They were passed down from generation to generation to generation. You see, you're the last domino in a long line of dominoes. Nehemiah realizes that as he prays, he's responsible not only for his own sin, but also for the sins passed down to him. So he confessed those sins and repented of them. He was a humble man. He had a job as a cupbearer to the king. So before he went before the king, he prayed. And as he appeared before the king, the king said to him, what is it you want, Nehemiah? And before he said a word, he prayed to the God of heaven. And the king granted him permission to go back. He said, I want to go back and rebuild the wall. And the king granted him permission. He gave him sort of a liberal leave policy. The king gave him an easy pass to pass through the various territories of the kingdom. The king bestowed upon him a Lowe's credit card to buy timber with. And the king sent some state troopers along to make sure that he'd have safety on his journey. You see, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, favor in the eyes of the king. And so Nehemiah was a humble man. And when he comes to the city, he doesn't start waving his papers around or bossing people around. He studies the situation. Rather than jump in, he studies what the condition of the city was. Now, if you were to drive around your city or have conversations with people in your city, what would you say is the condition of your city? What is the condition of your state? What is the condition of your nation? Where are we in this journey? You see, Nehemiah doesn't want to move unless God is moving. He wasn't, doesn't want to do something unless God is prompting him to do it. So he spends some time assessing the situation and praying about what is his next move. Nehemiah is a humble man. After three days of surveying, he says to the people, you see the trouble we are in. The walls have been broken down. The gates burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the city, the wall around Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. 
Nehemiah was a humble man, and he knew he wasn't a builder. He was a cupbearer. He knew he couldn't get this done by himself. He knew he needed God's direction, but he knew the people would have to buy in. So he called the people to action. He said, our God is with us. Our God is for us. Are you willing to help rebuild the city? And the people said, yes, let us rebuild. And they started the good work. Now we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, of course, when we understand the vision God gives to us, there always will be opposition. When you begin to move forward with what God wants for you, you're always going to face uh, the adversity and the adversary. So in chapter 4, we find that Sam Ballot, who epitomizes the enemy, begins to oppose the rebuilding of the wall. He begins to incite fear into the hearts of the people. We find that he questions their motivation. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? He insults them. He says, will they restore the wall? He questions their intentions. He says, will they offer sacrifices? He questions their character, their integrity. He even questions the materials they're working with, the stones that once were destroyed they're working with. And he prays a very angry prayer in verses 4 and 5. But we find in verse 6 that he rallied the people to the vision and they rebuilt the wall until it reached half its height and the people worked with all their heart. The people had a mindset to build. The people had a mindset to address the problem of the city and to move forward. Now we find in verse 13, Therefore I stationed some of the people in the most vulnerable places. I posted them by families with their swords and spears and bows. You know, the sword is the weapon that you hold closest to yourself in hand-to-hand combat. The spear has a range of maybe 20, 30 feet. And then a bow can be lobbed from a long distance. He prepared his people for a battle. And then he said these words, verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, fight for your sons, fight for your daughters, fight for your wives, and fight for your homes. This sermon is constructed around the what, the so what, and the now what. So let's take a look, if we can, together at the what of chapter 4 and verse 14. The first thing he says to them is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear is normal and natural. We're all inclined to get get afraid. But fear can paralyze us. We can live in a spirit of fear. But God has not given to us a spirit of fear but of love and of power and of a sound mind. You see, the people here were listening to the reports of the enemy. They were listening to the negativity, and fear was swelling up inside of them. You see, the Lord our God is bigger than our enemies. The Lord made the heavens. The Lord our God dwells in the heavens. He he made the earth. The Lord our God delivered his people out of Egypt. You remember the story, the the Pharaoh and his army were chasing the nation of Israel. 
the dust was rolling up behind them. You could hear the sound of the chariots. And there was nothing in front of them except the Red Sea, mountains to the north and desert to the south. And God said through Moses, Do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of the Egyptians. Do not be afraid of their chariots. Do not be afraid of their soldiers. Trust in the Lord. Stand still. And you'll see the deliverance that God will bring today. You see, God had heard their cries. God had seen their misery. And now he was taking his arm to stretch out and deliver his people out of bondage. Wherever you see Egypt, you see bondage. And the people were slaves there. And God's will is not for his people to live as slaves. God's will is for his people to be free. And God was setting the captives free. And he said, don't be afraid of them. Now Nehemiah, looking over his people, swelling up with fear, says, do not be afraid of them. God is not with them. God is with us. God is not for them. God is for us. And then he said these words, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In order to move forward with what God wants us to do, sometimes we need to look back upon what the Lord God has done. He said, remember the Lord who is great. Remember the Lord, we were captives. And the Lord gave us permission to come back. Look at all the progress we made upon this wall. The people were becoming very discouraged. He was speaking into their discouragement. And then he turns and says, in the bottom of verse 14, and fight, fight for your brothers. Imagine fighting for your brother. Your brother can't fight for himself. He needs somebody to fight for him. Your brother has been taken captive. He lies behind enemy lines. He's been ensnared by the evil one. The enemy has stalked him and captured him. And your brother is kicking himself. You see, sin was pleasurable for a season, but now he feels regret and guilt and shame. He's been taken out. He has been sidelined. Now, this is not just one man. This is many men who have been taken out by the enemy. You see, the horsepower of the church is the men of God who will rise up. But the men have become impotent because the enemy has taken us out. And the men of God need to arise and understand that God has made you to fight. We are called to fight. We are not called to withdraw from the battle. We're not called to pretend there is no battle. We're not called to be cowards. We're called to step into the fight and fight for our brothers. Your brother needs someone to fight for him. Your brother may be caught up in sin. The scripture says they've perhaps fallen into a trap. They can't get themselves out. But you who are spiritual, restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness. Spiritual means walking in the spirit, right? Lord, what is my assignment? God, my brother is trapped. I don't know how to set him free, but God, would you now enable me to walk beside him that he might step into freedom? We need to fight for one another. Scripture says two are better than one. You know, if a person falls into a trap, into a pit, you know, pity the man who has no one to help him. Two are better than one because they can keep each other warm at night. Now, I love that verse. The two can keep each other warm at night. But it's speaking of soldiers in the midst of battle. 
You see, it's cold out there in the battlefield. There's nothing to keep you warm. And here's two soldiers lying back to back, you know, keeping each other warm in the cold of the night. You see, a brother can't get himself free apart from a brother coming along to be his battle buddy. Imagine your son. The Scripture says, fight for your son. Your son is going to be just like you if you're a dad. He's a mirror reflection of who you are. So we pass on part of ourselves to our sons. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Now I know in American culture, there are three primary things that men want to pass on to their sons. The first is power. We want to be powerful and strong. We want to be in powerful positions. We want to act like we are in control. The second is about possessions. Life is all about acquisitions, about possessions. Having a cool car to drive, having a cool phone to text with, having a cool boat to fish with, and then pleasure. Life to some is all about getting as much pleasure as you possibly can get. So most men are passing on to their children power, trying to be in control, having possessions, acquiring stuff, getting pleasure, usually alcohol, and chasing women. But what if we were to offer to our sons something very different? What if we were to offer to our sons freedom? What if we were to offer to our sons peace? What if we offer to our sons contentment? To know peace, a son must know Jesus Christ. And to enter into that contentment and thankfulness, we must know a God who's been good to us. Not striving to have what you do not have. Not trying to appear in control when you don't have it all together. Or not trying to satisfy the flesh. We need to fight for our sons. This generation is not looking for perfect fathers. God already has a perfect son. But our sons are looking for real fathers. A father who will pass on his faith to his children. A father who will listen to his son's story. Father who will show his son how to do stuff. A father who will be with his son. A father who will engage. A father who will be involved. No young man becomes a man without a father bequeathing that upon his son. A son is always asking the question, do I have what it takes? I was talking to a man who is a welder before the service. And his grandson is learning to weld. And he said to his grandfather, do you think that I would be able sometime to come to the welding shop? What he was really saying is, do you think I can become a man? Do you think I can become like you are? Do you think I can do something useful to make a living for me and my family? See, that's the question young men are asking. Do I have what it takes? A father bestows upon his son. You have what it takes to treat a woman with respect. You have what it takes to set boundaries in your life. You have what it takes to go off to college on the great adventure. You have what it takes to make a living and support your family. We need to fight for our sons. But we also need to fight for our daughters. Your daughter now is a delicate little flower. But one day she will be a mighty strong oak tree. But right now she needs a fence around her to protect her. Teacher, she is worth fighting for. 
She is worth protecting. She will learn someday that, <laughs> that she has worth and value, that she is beautiful. And she will learn how to navigate through this world. But a dad sees his daughter, this is how dads see their daughter, as a Stradivarius. And they see all these young men as young beasts. <laughs> you know, when my, <laughs> when my daughter, um, Betsy, was growing up, there would be a lot of guys over the house. And they would say, and she would say, Dad, can you get rid of these guys? And I'd say, guys, it's time to go. And they'd say, Pastor R, we like being at your house. And I said, we like when you go. You need to go now, so leave. Like, you need to fight. <laughs> fight for your daughter, right? Fight for your daughter. Call her beautiful because she is beautiful. Fight for her because she's worth it. A daughter comes under the loving protection of her father. She sees the security and the strength that he brings. And don't be afraid to show your daughter affection, even if she has a boyfriend. To show her affection because that's what you need to do. And fight for your wives, it says. A man is made to fight. A woman needs a man who's willing to fight for her. If he doesn't fight for his woman, she wonders, am I worth fighting for? Are we enough to fight for? See, our marriages are part of a larger story. The Bible begins with a marriage, the marriage of a man and woman. The Bible ends with another marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the Bible tells us that in between is a major battle going on, the battleground of marriage. You see, marriage is all about love and intimacy. And we're called to love one another. We're commanded to love one another. But the love story takes place in the midst of a terrible war. Two newlyweds were in the garden. And the devil breaks in trying to convince them that they can live their lives independently of God. So what happens in the midst of the battle is there's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And marriage is a beautiful story of redemption and love and of healing, of two people going through life, um, fighting against the enemy and finding love with one another. So let's talk about fighting for our wives. Wives want their husbands to fight for them. They want to know that you are for them. They want to know that you will do what you have promised them. They want you to listen to what they are dealing with. So now we're going to turn to an equipping moment for you guys. What if a wife were to say to her husband, have you blank question mark and fill in the blank? Have you taken out the trash? Have you called the bank? Have you dealt with the insurance? Now the husband is being asked a question, and you've been asked this question, have you blank question mark? Now he could be totally on it, right? Taking care of business. He could have totally forgotten what's being asked of him, or he could be avoiding the issue altogether. So the wife says, and you've said this, haven't you? Have you blank question mark? Now that's a very good question. Let me give you a very good response. Thanks for reminding me. Wait a second. She says, have you? And you say, 
Thanks for reminding. Here's another really good response. I'm working on that, and here's where I am in my progress. Or you know what? That is completely off my radar. I've totally forgotten that. Those are all great answers, okay? But on the other hand, suppose she says to you, have you blank question mark? And she gets silence. Or you say, why don't you just leave me alone? Or you say, don't you see that I am busy? Or you say, don't you see that I'm an anointed man of God, busy about God's business? God has called a man to love. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her. When she comes home with groceries, volunteer to get the groceries out of the trunk. When there's clothes sitting at the bottom of the steps, don't trip over them or jump over them. Pick them up. When there's clothes laying in the floor, there's a hamper somewhere to put it into. There's all these different manifestations of showing love. Husbands, fight for your wives. Fight for your marriage. God wants to transform your life, and God wants to transform your marriage. You know what? A man sets the atmosphere in the house. So he can bring his peace into the home. Even though there's chaos, he can bring peace. And let's talk last about fighting for our homes. The home is a sacred, holy space. The home is where we come home from battle to get some rest. But for so many, the home has turned from a place of rest into a battleground. A man must fight for his home by setting the atmosphere. A father is a sanctifying influence. He never allows his children to disrespect their mother. You know, when my daughter Betsy was growing up, she would sass her mom, being about 11 or 12, and we had this bottle of hot sauce. And Betsy would have a taste of hot sauce every time she sassed her mom. We went through a lot of hot sauce. And she learned you'll never, ever, never, ever, ever disrespect your mom. If the kids are out of line, the father disciplines, mother too, because they love their children. You see, the weapons we fight with are very different kinds of weapons. So let's go now to the so what. What was Nehemiah's battle plan, and what can we learn from his battle plan? The first thing we learn about Nehemiah, who saw this situation, was he went to prayer. He was a man of prayer. You can tell if a man is of humility by his prayers. When I'm driving up to my house in the evening, coming home, I will usually stop and just pray for the people of the house. I pray for Debbie. I pray for my kids. I pray for my kids' spouses. I pray for little Judah, my grandson. I pray for whoever else I think I'm going to encounter in that moment. To becoming a person of prayer, praying on behalf of your children. And second thing he did was, 
He united the people to a common vision. You see, the people were becoming discouraged because of all the rubble they saw in their city. The stone, the mortar, the dirt. And there was rubble everywhere. And God had given him a very clear vision. The vision was to rebuild the wall. And God has given to us a very clear vision to make disciples, to be disciples who make disciples. So let's apply this now to a young mom. Let's say a young mom has a new baby at home. And you ask her, how's it going? And she says, I have changed eight diapers today and changed an outfit five times and I haven't brushed my teeth. What happens is, in being a young mom, is you can be so focused on the rubble, you forget the vision. The vision is to be a disciple who's making a disciple. This little one whose diaper you're changing, whose outfit you're changing, this little one you're sacrificing for, you're enabling to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, you see. What you're doing is a very good and noble thing, but sometimes you can get so caught up in the rubble, you forget to see the, the vision. Sometimes in marriage, it can seem so difficult and hard because we're working through the rubble. There's all this stuff we're dealing with, all this peripheral stuff, right? There's stress, and there's work, and there's schedules, and there's bills, and there's taxes. We're kind of fighting through all this rubble, but we're forgetting that the purpose of marriage is that the two become one, right? That we're in this together. We're, we're a team. We're, we're fighting not with each other, but we're fighting for each other. You see, we have to be willing to fight for our homes. He did not focus on the negative. He did not focus on the rubble. He did not focus on the enemy. But he said, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight, fight for your uh, family, fight for your home, fight for your daughter, fight for your son, fight for your brother. He was calling the people to be willing to prepare themselves for battle, but also to be building something beautiful unto God, to be building this wall around the city. You see, as long as there was, the wall was down, the city was vulnerable. And you get to be the gatekeeper of what comes into your house. You get to control what television you watch. You get to control what you view on the internet. You get to control what video games are played in your house. You get to be the gatekeeper to your house, you see, of what's coming in and how your house can become vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. And God so wants you to fight for your household that your household is not succumbing to the attacks of the enemy. God wants you to fight for them, to fight for their freedom, to fight for their um, liberty, and to not become slaves to the enemy. So let's talk about the now what. What I'd like to take you through now is a guided prayer praying for you and your family. So I'd like you to just kind of get relaxed and still and quiet. Close your eyes, and I'm going to begin to pray for us, okay? So, Father, here we are in your presence. You're a great and awesome God. 
Some here have gone through very painful times. The painful breakup of their marriages. I pray for healing in the most innermost part by your spirit. I pray that nothing I have said will wound them or hurt them. And I pray now, Lord, for all of us as we come into your presence, that you are the God of heaven, that you are the God of angel armies, that you rule over all the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that power and might are in your hand, that no one on this earth can ever withstand you. We pray to our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. We praise you, God, that you are our refuge and our strength. You are a mighty tower that we can run to in our times of trouble. You are our rock and our fortress. You are our deliverer. No one who's ever put their faith in you, O oh God, will ever be disappointed. So God, in the midst of our distress, we call out to you, for you are worthy of our praise. But we come not only praising you, Lord, we come confessing. We have tried to pretend that there really isn't a battle. We have tried to fight in our own strength. We have at times run from the battle because we are weak. God, have mercy upon us and forgive us and strengthen us and encourage us. And we're going to ask you now, Lord, in a spirit of prayer, where is the battle? Lord, would you reveal to us what are the battle lines? What is the battlefield? Some here may be under attack. I pray for the sovereign protection of God around their heart. I pray for the hedge of God's protection around your life. I pray for the peace of God that passes understanding to be upon your house. Your wife may be under attack. Your husband may be under attack. Your son, your daughter may be under attack. Your mom, your dad may be under attack. God, how do you want us to fight? Is there a battle that we're supposed to step into? Is there somebody, Lord, you want me to battle for in their personal life, in their relationships, in their married life, in their financial life, in their health? God, we know we're in a fight. We know people are discouraged. So show us, God, how to bring your encouragement into the discouraged person's life. God, we plead with you to deliver them. Just as you stretched forth your hand in the land of Egypt and you showed your mighty strength by delivering the captives, Father, stretch forth your hand, reach to that captive and deliver them out of bondage. Deliver them out of darkness. Lord, let them walk in the light. Let them walk in freedom. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name for a mighty work to be done in that person's life. And so we remember, Lord, that the battle is not ours. The battle is yours. And we are battle buddies with you. Show us, Lord, who you want us to fight for. Help us to engage, to involve ourselves, to not be passive, to show forth your strength and your power and your might, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen. It is Memorial Day, and so many have fought for us, and God calls us to battle. May God bless you.